Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Nine minutes left. <laughs> Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jayan Prater, and I am joined by host Ryan Zaid, Dan Carlito, and my and Patrick Green. I almost said Michael Green. <laughs> Someday. And today uh, we are talking about or going through listener feedback. It's been a long, long, long time. We're way overdue. We apologize. Dan and Ryan are sort of in charge of listener feedback, so we're doing our best to kind of go through that and respond as much as we can with as much time as we have to certain points or certain points in emails, listen to your, your voicemails and play them on our episodes. So that's what we're really devoting this time tonight for, but you guys have a lot of great feedback as usual, and there's so much to talk about, and we're going to do our best to get through it, and we hope you enjoy. So, but before we get into that... Patrick is going to go over what's kind of been going on in the Blade Runner awards world. Yeah, so it's been a, a pretty busy award season so far, and uh, and hopefully we're just seeing the the beginning of of what's going to be a really great season for for the movie. Um, before we get into that, just just briefly want to just acknowledge the loss of Johan Johansson as um, sort of a member of the um, expanded Blade Runner family, even though he wasn't directly tied to the movie for very long. Um, He's somebody that means a lot to all of us. And so in a future episode, maybe the next one, um, we'll have a, a little sort of miniature retrospective because we don't want to, um, you know, gloss over the fact that we lost an amazing creative guy. But we'll, we'll save that for, for the next time. In the meantime, um, as we are recording this, we actually just found out that Blade Runner 2049 has won some BAFTA awards, which is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. including, to my mind, the most important of all uh, for the things that it could have really won, which is cinematography. Roger Deakins won the BAFTA for cinematography um, just tonight, and uh, and Denis Villeneuve read his uh, acceptance speech on his behalf. And um, that is a huge deal, and, and I think it bodes pretty well for a certain other award ceremony that's coming up right around the corner. Um, yeah. It also won uh, for special visual, special visual effects, so Richard Hoover, Paul Lambert, uh, Gerd Nefser and John Nelson won that, and uh, I think that I think that was just the two. Is that right, guys? I think as far so. As I can tell. Did that was yeah, that I the Moving was... Picture Company? Did they win? Is that what the like? There's so many visual effects and there's so many houses that I know. are responsible. Well, 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 it's confusing to me. So, so John Nelson, um, I, I think, was the supervisor for the for the effects, right? And so, I think he oversaw the MPC work, and um, so so that they would be. I think included under that. But that being said, I'm by no means an expert on that. If you know better, you know, go ahead and say it. <laughs> no, I don't know. I was just curious. Like, yeah. I mean, again, I, I was asking like, because yeah, there's just, there's so many different uh, parties involved with the effects on the film. It's kind of hard to know. Well, was it Weta? Was it the MPC? Was it, uh, right. there's another one that uh, Steven Saunders was talking about. I can't remember their name right now, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't know if it was them. So it's kind of confusing. 
But I, I think that's why like Nelson gets the nomination because because he kind of oversees all those various moving parts. Um, but then again, if somebody knows better, please write in and tell us because we're a bunch of floundering idiots on some, some of these issues sometimes. So we, we definitely appreciate it. But um, moving on, there's some other great news. Uh, Deacons also won the top prize from the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, um, which is another very big deal. Um, it's his fourth competitive ASC award, and he's also got a lifetime achievement award from the group. Um, and uh, of course, Deacons has never won the Oscar, even though he's been nominated now 14 times. So uh, this is all boating, we think, very well. And on that same token, uh, he also won at the Lumiere Awards, which is specifically around um, you know the uh, visual entertainment possibilities and uh, things like innovations in 3D and virtual reality and augmented reality. And it's held in Los Angeles every year, and it's really about the technical side of visual filmmaking. And uh, and yeah, Deacons won that as well. Um, Twenty Forty Nine also got both Best Motion Picture Live Action, got Best Three D Motion Picture Live Action for Best Stereography, and uh, got Best Two D to Three D Conversion. And um, I think that might have might have even gotten more stuff, but that, those are the ones that I have written down. I mean, it really is cleaning up a lot, especially the technical awards. I think we can all agree it would be nice if it got more of the, um, you know, the non-technical sort of headline awards as well. But that being said, these are very important awards, especially cinematography. It's a really monumental achievement. So I think it's something we can certainly celebrate. Um, wrapping up sort of breaking news items, there's uh, another great thing we just found out about a couple days ago is that Paul Inglis, who was the art director of 2049, has now been officially hired for J.J. Abrams' upcoming Star Wars Episode Nine. Um, Inglis, of course, has also worked on Skyfall, Game of Thrones, uh, Children of Men, which is one of my favorite movies ever, um, yeah. Prometheus. Um, he has an incredible resume, but most recently he got a lot of acclaim for 2049 and I think it um, bespeaks both to you know the success of the movie and the success of his work that he's now going to be in episode nine and hopefully elevating that artistically to a whole new um, plateau. So it's a lot going on in the Blade Runner universe. And again, next time we will have a little more information on Johansson. And um, that's uh, that's about what I got. That's awesome. And uh, you know, I just think it's worth saying that it's really an incredible time to to have Blade, Blade Runner 2049, even though it didn't do a lot financially, what it's cleaning up in and it's making its name with the reception that's received from fans and the reception it's receiving from the industry. And people are essentially just saying, man, this is a work of incredible genius and we're honoring it. And, you know, five Academy Awards, all those BAFTA nominations, Lumiere's, the, the, you know, the award that uh, Deacons just won. It's really an incredible thing. And, it's just an incredible thing to be alive during this time and to have experienced this film that we all have from essentially inception through release, through post-release, now through on Blu-ray and 4K and all of these things. And we yeah. eventually we want to have a, an episode where we're going to kind of go through all the awards. We're going to play segments of people accepting the awards. And we're going to kind of have a celebration of 2049 and talk about this incredible movie and kind of go back to those first times that we, when we saw the film and, um, just kind of talk about why we're here. And uh, I mean, we're here because of the universe and certainly 2019 is the, you know, the founding father, the foundation of the Blade Ray universe. But really we, we are in a place where we never expected to be. And that is in love with this incredible film. So we look forward to that. And that being said, um, just, just to echo what, what Jamie said, we are 
also preparing upcoming content on 2019. So we're definitely going to be pivoting back to that, at least for, for a while, because I, I know, um, you know, we all miss talking about it. So be on the lookout for that too. But, but it is, as Jamie said, a, a moment to really celebrate what 2049 has become. It's, it's incredible. So next up, we are going to get involved with listener feedback and that's going to be kind of uh, a varying amount of things or kind of multimedia where we're going to include voicemails in this episode maybe not all of them but as many as we can we're going to go through some of um, our emails that we've received which are quite a few and they're really amazing and some that we got last year that we never responded to and I remember one of them that we received Patrick and I were like oh we need to do an episode and talk about this and we never did just because there's so much going on and there's always a lot going on Um, so Dan and Ryan are going to kind of take us through those emails and voicemails and we're going to talk about it so here we go thanks for that jamie uh yeah like everybody knows we've been struggling to kind of catch up with all the listener mail so this was really a concerted effort by all of us to get back to you guys for calling in and you know keeping up your passion about the movies that really helps the show out um you know a few things we do with your feedback sometimes we respond directly if we want to get into an email conversation with you back and forth or we want to clarify something mm-hmm. um i do we do listen to all of them and i've been writing notes and you know for a lot of you who have called in or written in multiple times and kind of have themes going in in what topics you you choose to speak about in each movie we're saving a lot of that information for when we do for example character specific episodes and as as we as we come up with a with a more clear timeline plan which we're working on on what episodes are going to come out when so you guys can even prepare questions and kind of think about the topics before they come out um things like you know uh doing deckard as an entire character in 2019 uh k as a as a character in 2049 and, and you know there's many directions we can take that but we're going to use you guys's input and feedback to help guide us through some of those discussions so again thank you all for calling in it's really invaluable um so yeah let me go through this as quickly as i can i kind of want to try and acknowledge everyone but i'll try and summarize your themes um so going all the way back to october tom strong called in and he was talking about the experience of watching 2019 in the theaters uh with his dad and even though him and his dad saw the movie differently um it was always a connection for them his dad passed away a few years ago and uh, i believe it was a film class if i'm not mistaken but they were asking what's the most powerful film you've ever seen and why and Many people were mentioning, you know, Citizen Kane and Casablanca and It's a Wonderful Life. And, uh, of course, Tom said Blade Runner. And when asked why, he simply said, because when I watch it, my father's alive again. What other movie could be that powerful? Um, wow. And I, I, I really connect with that sentiment myself personally. But um, I think it's just a good example of, you know, why these movies are so important to people. Um, let's see. I'd like to. And I just want to say, like, thank you for um, for being so open and vulnerable, Tom. Seriously, that that's like yeah. kind of hard to talk about. So thank you for for that. Yeah, totally. We really appreciate that. There's a few uh, continuous contributors that are either constantly active on um, Fields of Calantha, our Facebook page uh, or discussion group, or that have called in multiple times. So Reno D from Montreal, we'd like to have a special shout out to you because we've gotten involved with a lot of personal discussions back and forth. 
Um, some of you guys we will invite onto the show to do roundtable discussions with us later. So we'll uh, mm -hmm. we'll reach out to those people individually and kind of, well, if we can, give you an option of topics that are upcoming based on what you're particularly interested in, if, if we can. Um, Peter from Atlanta, Georgia called in and was mentioning the B scene and it reminded him of the Voight-Kampf test in the first movie and the Hornet, the question about the Hornet. You know, there's a Hornet on your hand and Rachel responds, I'd kill it. And Kay has a moment um, with bees, which is a more, much more complex interaction um, when he puts his hand in the beehive and he's kind of looking at the bees. It's obviously a very contemplative moment for him. Um, and I think even the fact that a bee colony is sort of a much larger organization and group and they're, you know, they're working and doing things compared to a single hornet, even that simplicity versus complexity kind of um, – reminds me of the feel of both movies. Not to say that 2019 is simple, but that, you know, some of the plot points are a little bit more straightforward, whereas 2049 um, makes you rewind a lot more, I would say, sometimes in, 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 in secondary viewings that I've had. Mm -hmm. um, Just to, to the to the bees thing super quick, um, mm -hmm. I, I brought this up a, a few episodes ago, but I, that it's, it might be my favorite part. It's one of my, like, top three favorite moments of the movie. And, and I think that... Uh, there's something really poignant about it, it being bees of, of all the creatures that could possibly be alive because they're obviously so afflicted and that, you know, we're losing the global bee population is being decimated by a series of mysterious things right now. And, um, and I, and I just think it's such an interesting choice of, of organism. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of layers to that, to that moment. And there's something really specifically poignant about it being bees to me. And yeah, if I, I can, if I can uh, riff on that a little bit, if you think about K when he's at Sapper Morton's and there's this tree that's dead, that's kind of being held into the ground by a by wires. And he finds this, this box, this ossuary, um, which essentially is kind of like it's dead, but it's alive. He found life where life shouldn't be. And then he goes into the, into the desert and he also finds life where life shouldn't be. And they're also bees and they're surrounding, uh, essentially large monuments to very sexualized women. So this is these, they're interesting plays on each other where uh, they're, they're similar scenes in very different ways. Please don't get up. because we don't run. Only older models do. And you new models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. We have another one here, uh, Jamie Mack uh, from Vancouver. We do have a lot of Canadian listeners, which is great. I'm sure uh, Denis would be pleased to hear that. Yeah. But, um, you know, she left us a long voicemail and was talking a lot about joy. I will say, generally speaking, that, you know, Kay and Joy are the characters that are brought up the most in Listener Collins. Again, we will have a uh, much uh, anticipated Joy episode where we break down a lot more of this, but 
Um, so Jane brought up some good points that have been brought up before, but um, she was talking about Joy's humanity um, and it being defined by her willingness to sacrifice herself. We think that this is a great point of contention between um, people who think Joy is nothing but primary code and just programming versus people who think that Joy has kind of transcended that a little bit to become more like more human. Um, and of course that's, that's the ever running theme in 2019 in terms of Deckard being or not being a replicant, um, you know, Kay thinking he might be human, he might not be, um, all those things kind of go hand in hand. Uh, she brought up a clockwork orange as a, um, as a parallel in talking about, um, the programming replicants have. And she was saying, you know, if you take away free will, is there a moral choice there? Can someone still make moral choices if their free will has been taken away? If a Nexus 9 is built only to follow orders to the point where they'll kill themselves on command, um, can they really have any kind of uh, morality? Mm. Um, which is an interesting philosophical parallel. She also mentioned that Joy goes against the corporation by going against her programming. Um, and so that's another good point of, is this something she's supposed to be doing based on her programming or is she fighting her own programming? Um, again, these are things that have been brought up by many people and, um, we will spend a lot more time talking about joy later, but quickly, um, Oh, I hear cats. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but quickly, uh, to that point, I just think it's worth (laughs) mentioning because we don't, you know, it's a quick thing. Denis Villeneuve, um, in a recent interview, Talked about Joy briefly, but the mo- the most he's talked about her, um, and he said he's going. Joy is going to reflect Kay's desire to be human, and she's going to reflect that in her desire to kind of wanting to be free of of confines. So his desire for essentially emancipation uh, from his existence, she's also reflecting that to him. So she's going to do things that he's going to want to do. So it kind of, Mm -hmm. it throws it back like, well, is she just doing it because that's what he's doing or is she doing it because she's sentient or she's going against her programming? We don't know. But again, as we continue to talk about joy later on, it'll be interesting fodder for conversation. Yeah. I have have many, many follow-ups to that, but I'm going to table those for now. They're all wrong. So (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. I just love that ambiguity about her character. It is. Oh yeah. We'll and I, end. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you, Ryan. Go ahead. Yeah, you did. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> go, no, go for it. I'm just kidding. I was, I was just going to say, um, and, and good for uh, Villeneuve in these interviews where he's saying, that's an interesting idea. You know, here's kind of what I think, but keeping things vague and allowing that yeah. ambiguity. I think what I see as an unspoken thing is uh, Denny Villeneuve admitting that the director does not really have final say over what your product when it's art like that reaches Mm -hmm. into and what ideas it makes people have just like Ridley Scott, I think was surprised by just how deep the concepts in 2019 got and how, how much people could deliberate Mm -hmm. on one issue or another. And I think Denis is smartly acknowledging that from the get go saying, look, here's what I think. Here's what I'm not going to talk about, but I don't have final say over these ideas because they were left ambiguous on purpose so you can make up your mm-hmm. own mind I, I i can just see that going on in his head you know oh yeah if we, if we get to I interview totally, him totally. it's certainly something that we will directly ask him about i think but let alone fancher you know like i'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious about that you know, i think the best directors and 
writers do that. I mean, as you're talking, I was just thinking about, you know, when uh, Stanley Kubrick was interviewed about 2001 and he's, he's kind of like, I, I don't really know. Like I could give you my, my idea of like what might've happened, but I don't want to influence. I don't want my word to be the final say on that, you know, just cause I directed the movie. It's uh, the movie kind of transcends that. Um, and uh the themes and things like that, they they go beyond what just the writer or director might think they are. You know, they're 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 really just another opinion. Um, but you know, we could have uh opinions or views that are different that could be just as valid or just as justified. So that's what makes movies like Blade Runner just so amazing. Is that um I mean, we'll be debating about these things for decades, centuries. Yeah, it's it's. I, so I, I really applaud Villeneuve for for not uh, trying to give us a like a final answer. I think that was smart. Bad dog. Yeah, doing it right from step one to step twenty seven hundred. <laughs> I was gonna right say, now. I feel like I feel like that evil nerve is just is like just like the most perfect guy. Like he just like never screws <laughs> up. Yes. I just like have so oh, much man. faith in everything about him. What I, what I think I love about it though, about twenty forty nine though, and great art. Great art is everything to everyone. It is not one thing. It's not defined. Um, it be there is no kind of. It's like an open-ended question. And I think the best sci-fi is about that open-ended question. What is it? What if? What are we? Who are we? And then that we try to answer those questions for ourselves because the art isn't answering, it's asking. And I think that's why 2049 is so successful because it's a great big set of questions. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to have a film honor its audience that way and honor... It's audience in a way that like, we know that you're smart and we're asking you, well, what is being human? Um, what is important? Is joy real? Is she not? What makes joy real or, or not? What makes K real or a human or not? Is he a human because we say he is? And because all of these things that we also ask ourselves and uh, mm -hmm. I, I, there, there are endless conversations that can come from it. And so that it's a testament in and of itself and, it doesn't need any anything else. It doesn't need any hard answers. It doesn't. Um, and I don't think that we're even doing this show looking for hard answers. We're doing this show yeah. looking to ask better questions. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And it's it's very gutsy storytelling to do that, you know, to mm -hmm. take the risk. And because and, we're talking about a commercial product, ultimately a commercial Hollywood major release, you know, that, that has investors and needs to make some sort of profit to be viable. And they're going into that thinking, well, we are going to make it deliberately vague and difficult and open-ended. And knowing that mo the majority of the movie-going public in, in 2018 is not that movie-going public. And maybe, you know, 
I, I mean, it's easy to complain about today, but maybe that movie going public never existed. You know, like who, who knows? But I do know that now people do not go to movies like that at the sort of scale that they go to a lot of other tentpole releases. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, again, I think we really have to applaud not only the creative team, but the production team and the staff behind it for, for making those hard decisions to make a movie that would ask so many questions without answering very many yeah. at all. Isn't it awesome when we're when we're as an audience treated with respect and as if we're intelligent because I mean you got I mean the audience is intelligent. I just I just love that. It makes such a huge difference when you can leave a theater and like, wow, you know, the whoever the guys who made the the people who made that film really treated almost it's like they treated me personally like I I was smart and that they they knew that and then that that's what they gave us was this art that uh, it didn't it didn't spoon feed us answers it just raised questions and it had right, us right. think and you know and now we're talking with each other about it it's like that's what it, through the millenniums you know it's that's what millennia that's what what what's so amazing about great art um, totally totally you know and we're in yeah. such a, a climate of fourth fed. CGI schlock fest, geostorms. I mean, all of these films. <laughs> we're, we are. We're, we're living in this dumbing down. I mean, really, we, we kind of transitioned from this amazing kind of decade after decade of amazing storytelling with filmmaking. When filmmaking was new, you're talking the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and it got better, and it got better, and it got better, and technology got mm-hmm. better. And the 80s was just this, this smorgasbord of of wonder and excitement and doing things that we hadn't seen before. And uh, then things started to take a turn towards the middle well. to late. To late. No, just, just listen, just listen. And, <laughs> and, and I think, not that there weren't amazing films coming out, I'm not saying that, but I think generally studios stopped taking risks and they started kind of um, making the same film over and over or making sequel after sequel after sequel. So films like 2049 blow us away so much because we're not used to being treated so well. But there is a legacy of the system and the studio system treating the treating the audience like they're human beings. And I think that's what's so special about 2049 and Villeneuve is that he consistently says, you are smart, you can figure this out, I respect you, I, uh, I honor you, and I'm not going to feed you everything, and I'm going to make a, a piece of art and hopefully you see yourself in it. Um, and I just mm-hmm. think that that is, yeah. that's what's foreign now when it used to not be as foreign, not to say that, you know, there are many, many amazing things that we've all experienced throughout the years, whether it's streaming content or whatever, that we're like, oh my God, this stuff has changed our lives. But generally speaking, studios have transitioned away from really well thought out films to sequel after sequel after sequel and CGI wall to wall. And, uh, yeah. and Blade Runner includes many of those things, but uh, it does it in a way that uh, it, it honors the audience as opposed to uh, talks down to it. And I think that's what we're well, used to. Let, let, me just, let me just devil's advocate a tiny bit. And then I know we have to move on because this is not the point of the episode. I, but just just a, a very brief thing is that I, I think it's important to realize that or to keep in mind that the things that survive from the past are usually the things that are worth surviving, the things that get talked about and brought up again and again. So it's easy to look back and think like, oh, my God, like it was just this glut of amazing movies in the twenties and the thirties and the Godards and the, and like, you know, the French existentialist movies and these things. Uh, when in reality, there was a ton of shit coming out. I mean, there, <laughs> there were, there was, there were, you know, 
entire grindhouse movie production studios that just put out complete garbage, you know, below even like the Corman levels, you know, and, and there were decades where uh, it was so the, the Hollywood studio system was so powerful that it was just churning out these star features with no storyline, with these huge production budgets and these stars that were so doped up they couldn't even deliver performances just because they were contractually obligated to, you know, RKO or MGM. Like the, it, there, there was a lot of shit. In the 20th century, but but we don't talk about it because it's not worth talking about. So so I, although I think it feels like there's a ton of garbage coming out, and and I am not arguing with you about that because I feel it acutely that that, that there's a ton of shit coming out. But I also think we're not going to be talking about it in 20 years. And I think you know it's easy to look back at the 80s and think, wow, it was an amazing time in filmmaking because I think it was. I think empirically it was an amazing time in filmmaking. But I also think that there was a lot of shit that came out in the 80s that we kind of have forgotten about because it wasn't worth remembering. But that's just a separate conversation. We don't It is, but going. but we, you know, we we are on a, a show right now where people want to hear our feedback and so sometimes our conversations are going to kind of go off. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll reply to that with concurrently despite the a lot of the shit that we see that we don't talk about because it's not worth it. We have the streaming world, Netflix, um, and all of these Hulu, Amazon, mm-hmm. totally changing the, the 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 atmosphere, the 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 vision of and and creating amazing things like Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Tower, like The Handmaid's Tale, like Stranger Things, like uh, I mean Castle. Uh, uh, yeah, man. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Tower? Um, yeah, man in the high castle. I mean, and I man in the low garage, uh, or the the OA. Um, there's there's so much amazing. Oh, so good it was. There's so much amazing stuff coming out, and it's a revolution of like people, companies saying, you know what, we're gonna make our own content, and we're and they and they're doing it really really well. So I think we're now in a time of um of transition where there's a lot of amazing stuff coming out. Um, so I I don't want to you know, blow all that off and not uh, honor that and talk about that as well, you know? And then we're also in a really interesting time for science fiction. You know, we have Annihilation coming out next week um, and we've had a a spate of great science fiction films, um, except for anything. Uh, I got Except for Ridley Scott. Just for anyone out there who's a fan, which I certainly am. I know there's mixed feelings in this group, but Westworld, which season two is coming out soon, uh, (laughs) would, would A, not exist without Blade Runner. Um, right and and b i know really uh has a has a huge following and um yeah that's just just throwing that out there i agree with you about westworld i think westworld is fucking amazing uh i just it doesn't uh it doesn't linger in me like blade runner or ex machina or other things do but it's amazing i've watched every show and i'm gonna watch the new season too just to let you know i mean i know i think it was kind of unclear where we were coming from it just doesn't i don't think about it that much and I want to, but yeah. I don't. Well, and you're entitled to an opinion because you watch the whole show, whereas some other people here. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan took three years to watch Stranger Things. Anyways, <laughs> moving on. Uh, uh, right, let's I, see. Patrick, your brother-in-law, Dustin, called in uh, in October. <laughs> but we're getting to him now. Um, I think one interesting point he brought up is that maybe the unicorn dream from 2019 was meant to symbolize uh, Deckard's daughter. So neither Deckard nor Rachel, which is an interesting interpretation. I hadn't heard that one before. Hmm. Um, I like that point. Um, we Gabriel talked about, Torres called in. Was, go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, we talked about that briefly on uh, a show um, about the unicorn, the way Staline walks out from the, the field through the, through the, 
the trees, just like the unicorn is coming through the trees in 2019, they have to be intentional. So I just throw that out there as we move along. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Gabriel Torres called in to tell, uh, talking about joy again. And um, I bring it up because he brought up a different point saying that, um, you know, joy is in a female form when you look at her, but her gender is a total construct. It's not a real thing. You know, she could be male. She could be female. We don't know if joy has a male counterpart. Um, so, yeah, a small point Actually, there about do. joy, but interesting. We, we do, sort of. There's a official... Uh, I think it was a Chinese poster or no, it was a Japanese poster where you see a billboard and it's like, it's the Blade Runner universe or the 2049 universe. And it says joy. And underneath it, it says boy, B O I. Um, very interesting. What? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm surprised you guys haven't seen that. Yeah. And it's official. Yeah, I'm it's, surprised I haven't seen that. Too. It's from Alkin. It's, it's uh it was official. poster. No. Yes. It wasn't a uh, fan stuff. And I'll, I'll show it to no. you. Yeah. Share, share that shit. Right now. Mind blown. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, we certainly couldn't go much further into these without thanking Peter from the Midwest. I'd say a round of applause for Peter. Yeah, Peter. <laughs> um, Peter called in at least 12 times into the show. Uh, again, the voicemail is only, I think, cuts off at six minutes maybe. So um, Peter's a lawyer and often finds himself driving long distances in between jobs. And he tends to call us when he's driving, which we love. <laughs> Um, and he has brought up, he has brought up so much, especially about K that we will certainly dig into his, um, input when we do a full episode on K too much to be talking about here, but I did want to give a shout out to Peter. Um, he referenced moon asking everyone if they're familiar with and like moon. Certainly. I think everyone here is familiar with it. One, Mm -hmm. One of my favorites for sure. Sam Rockwell. Uh, does a phenomenal job in that movie. Shit. Of course, mentioned before, but the Coke uh, advertisements that we see in the city that say Joy uh, in 2019. Of course, that's J-O-Y, but still kind of funny that you see a reference almost to Joy, whereas in 2049, there's actual posters or uh, you know virtual shots of her as an advertisement. Um, there was a really nice atmosphere sort of scene Um referencing Deckard, uh, comparing Deckard and Kay. And um, Peter was mentioning how in 2019, Deckard is a passenger in Spinners. He sort of always has someone with him being brought along for the ride kind of reluctantly. Um, In 2049, Kay is driving himself, uh, almost as if there's sort of indicating more determination or more decision-making there, potentially. Um, Or is he being taken to a predetermined location that's already shot from the police department when he leaves, which is, you know, obviously he has an autopilot, which is why he can sleep on it. But, um, I thought that was an interesting point. Hmm. Um, again, I see points here about joy going against her programming, smashing her own product, which would be against the corporation's bottom line. Um, something that I'm sure we will go much further into when we do a full on uh, joy episode. And lastly, I wanted to mention Frank from San Francisco, who's seen the movie. I think he went 26 times in theaters last four check. Times. So 26 I think that's a record. So congratulations to Frank. <laughs> Obviously he's passionate about it. Um, he responded back when we were asking what, uh, what, what were, or we wanted people to call in with their favorite scene. And he talks about, uh, love, which is, you know, probably, definitely in the top three or four characters it's brought up. If it's not K and joy uh, or Deckard love gets brought up a lot. And um, Frank's favorite scene is the fight scene at the end between K and love. 
and how when he kills her, drowning her, he kind of is looking away. And he said, you know, I wonder if that's tied to having a soul or is it Kay kind of having shame uh, for having to kill her? Uh, we don't know. It's certainly his job to kill replicants. Uh, he's a Blade Runner after all. But uh, that's a moment that really stuck out to Frank in all his viewings. Um, hmm. And, yeah, I think that's about as good a summary as I'm going to do on this. So, again, I'd like mm-hmm. to thank all you guys for your emails and uh, voicemails. We do – if you bring up, you know, points that require sort of us chewing on them and some discussion in emails, we are going to email you back. We've been doing that as well. But um, these are mixed notes both from emails and Collins. So – um, thanks for your patience on waiting for us to get back to you and keep them coming because we, uh, really appreciate the input and would love to keep discussing things with all you guys. I still remember pretty vividly the first call in that we ever got. And I remember like we were freaking out that somebody would actually take the time to call into our show. And, um, <laughs> it's just, it's just amazing now that like we, I mean, that's how we met you, Dan. Like there, there are so Thank many so many people from so many walks of life and so many places in the, in the world who not only call in, but write us. And it's just, uh, it's just like incredibly humbling and really uh, energizing, I think for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to basically focus on one email we got back in November, middle of November um, from Constantine Alferis. And um, he wrote a very, very detailed, very well-written um viewpoint on Blade Runner 2049. Um, he did enjoy the film, but he felt like um, that it was not, it was definitely inferior, far inferior to the original 2019. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm going to read his he had a brief intro, and then I'm just going to read a cu- you know, a couple bullet points um is he has two main points. He thinks it's narratively inferior and aesthetically uh, very inferior. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple parts of those, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. Um, but uh, basically starts, Dear Ryan, Patrick, and Jamie, and uh, was before Dan came on, so and Dan as well, thank you for your Blade Runner 2049 podcast. It is entertaining and informative. While I applaud your efforts and your enthusiasm about this important film, I'd like to offer a passionate contrarian's view on how 2049 compares to the original. I have seen the original maybe 50 to 100 times, give or take, since it came out in the 80s. I was a teenager then, in all its incarnations, and have studied most books published about it, and also studied the music extensively. Uh, One, in my view, 2049 is narratively inferior. Um... A, it does not add anything new of significance to the original story, but actually detracts some major elements. In brief, the major thrust of the original is that Roy and his fellow replicants wanted more life. Replicants had feelings and self-determination and wanted to not die in just four years. This plot thread mirrors the fear humanity has of its mortality. The quest for God as provider of immortality, afterlife, and the rejection of God, metaphorical killing of Tyrell by Roy by those who do not believe. Um, yeah, so that's his uh, first point for why it's narratively inferior. And uh, what do you guys think of that? I would have to disagree as much as he lays his points out uh, really well. 
I think that all the points about sort of the nature of reality and the, what makes a human and personhood, all mm-hmm. those things are still there in the second movie. Um, for one, since at least one of the characters from the first movie is still alive, namely Deckard. Um, so mm-hmm. certainly his experiences carry on to the next movie. Um, but of course, in terms of self-determination, um, the plot point of Rachel having had a child uh, um, is a major, major point in, in 2049. Mm-hmm. And I think it just adds to the mystery and adds to the depth of the plight of the replicants. So that's what, that's certainly my main point I would use to refute what he's saying in terms of the narrative. And to add on that, um, you have Kay's whole journey is about self-determination about wanting to be, I mean, it's essentially Pinocchio, Pinocchio becoming a real boy and that happening before our eyes in a way. And then it kind of not, and then it kind of reverses. And then of course, like you said, Rachel having a child is, is, I mean, that talk about adding to the story. Um, it turns Rachel into godlike in terms in terms of who she is as a replicant and her significance, um, the the legacy of her memory within the the world of Blade Runner. I, I just again I, I would agree. I, I can't. I I would use that to absolutely refute it. Um, now, really, what what matters is how that impresses upon you. Like if that is an interesting storyline plot to you. Or to, if it's not interesting to someone else, if if a replicant having a child is interesting, then maybe it's not worthwhile. Maybe you think, oh, that doesn't add anything. Okay, she had a baby, so what? But of course, in Blade Runner, replicants can't have children. It's 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 a profound thing. It's like a, a miracle, like Sapper says. Um, so I I interesting point. I think, in my opinion, to reflect you, Dan, completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump on the on the bandwagon here because I I really appreciate Constantine writing in with such a uh, a different viewpoint on this, and and I think it's as you both said, perfectly valid. But um, I I also disagree because I think that the, the, they're they're different movies. Like they're they're movies that are concerned with similar themes and that explore those themes in a different way. And they're both about the existential question of who I am. And they're both about an existential fear of annihilation. And I feel like both of those themes are explored tremendously in both of them. Whereas in the first, in 2019, it's a more personal journey, especially, you know, with, uh, with, with the, with the renegade replicants and with, um, you know, Rachel being hunted and things like that. Like it's, it's this fear of, it's this quest to find out who they are and to, and to try to avoid being exterminated, being, you know, wiped from existence. And in 2049, it's about an entire you know, almost species, an entire class of, of semi-humans with the same concern banding together and saying that we do not deserve to be wiped out of this earth, that we are more than that, and that we are more than you think we are, and, and, um, and we deserve life. We want more life. We deserve it. Um, and to the point where they're able to actually create it, and then not only create it, but, but, but safeguard it and protect it. And pull a fast one over on the on you know the humans who created them in the first place, and in doing so, becoming you know quasi godlike. I, I think yeah, I just think they're, I think they're different movies with similar themes. Mm. Um, yeah, and then uh, next point he makes about why twenty forty nine is narratively inferior is that uh, he says the original, in my honest opinion, is not about what makes someone human. Um, like real memories, 
or implanted, etc., or whether replicants are human. Um, he says replicants are obviously human. They are anatomically, physiologically human, have human DNA, albeit engineered by human designers to enable desired traits, and also are behaviorally and emotionally human. They fall in love. They have humor. They are scared, hopeful, etc. Um, and I'm just going to include this next point. He says Deckard, Deckard though, is obviously a replicant. Uh, three proofs for this. One, Gaff knows his memories, which proves they were implanted. Thus, he is a replicant. Second, replicants are the ones who do the dangerous, deadly jobs, we are told. Gaff is the real policeman and handler of the replicant Deckard, who is assigned the deadly assignments. However, it is Gaff who is always nearby to first assign the case and monitor every move of Deckard. Uh, third, Deckard is capable of superhuman resilience to pain and damage and feats of strength, um, such as climbing upside down to reach the Bradbury building roof, all the while a heavy rain is underway, rooftop slippery, and his hand was very badly injured by Roy. Um, so, yeah. So on the first point about how replicants are obviously human, what, what do you guys think about that? Well, I think we have to, one thing that comes up in this argument a lot is knowing or discerning the difference between personhood and mm -hmm. actual humanity. Um, mm -hmm. I think because of the way they're created, at least in the first movie, the way they're created um, and assembled, you know, by definition, replicants aren't human. Um, but should they be treated like people should be, should be, should they have personhood essentially? Um, if you're familiar with our, uh, discussion group on Facebook, we just touched a little bit on the very controversial sort of love slash hate scene that, uh, is in the first movie. And we got a ton of responses on that. We kind of wanted to feel out, uh, our listeners to see kind of what everyone's opinion was. We would definitely be devoting a full episode um, just on that scene. But that uh, is one of the, you know, in, in that scene, that's one of the issues that's brought up is whether, you know, can you really mistreat or abuse a replicant when some people look at them as just machines, you know? And so that philosophical uh, concept is really prevalent in the first movie. So I really think it's very much up for debate um, what a replicant is. And again, like many other things, the movie leaves it ambiguous on purpose. Um, I think, uh, also in terms of Deckard and using facts and pulling things out of the movie to try and prove your point that he is human or he is a replicant, um, in his book, philosophy and blade runner, Timothy Shanahan does a really good job of breaking this down and kind of, uh, using 10 main points that, uh, have people thinking what Deckard is and then using facts to dispute it both ways. So I think, uh, for example, his description of uh, Deckard having superhuman strength, I think most of the time he's in physical interactions with the replicants, he's slower, weaker, and feels a lot more pain. Like just as an example of, of a counterpoint to that. So it really is subtle and, and kind of up to interpretation. Um, but obviously that's a, you know, anyone who can state matter of factly Deckard is a human or Deckard is a replicant is kind of missing some of the more subtle point, because again, we know that 
they made it purposely very difficult to be able to make that determination with confidence. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and increasingly more difficult as each iteration of the movie came out, you know, like it, it, it definitely, there's a trajectory of whether Deckard is a replicant or not that kind of runs throughout the various cuts of the film. <laughs> to the first point though, I, I would say that I would say that it is about what makes somebody a human, but it's not about what makes somebody a human in terms of like their taxonomy or like their, their genetic background. It's about lines of division and class and it's about who decides who's a human and who's not a human and what does that even entail. So to me, and I think 2049 is really goes very much into into um, detail on that. For example, when Joshi says that the world is built on a wall, right? She's talking about this this invisible division between things, about how that's the natural order and that's the hierarchy and that's how their society functions. Um, and if that wall is broken, then there's a breakdown of of order and of law and and the rule of law. And so that invisible wall is the wall separating the humans from the non-humans. It, it's separating the subjugated from the controllers. And so outside of questions of agency or personhood or anything like that, which I think Dan very eloquently discussed, I think it's fundamentally about who gets to decide who is whom and um, what do you do once you get put into a bucket. You know, so I, I do think that that's, that's really um, – I, uh, I think that's at the heart of both films. I would agree uh, with you, and I think that there is a, a difference. I think we all of all of us, all fans, not just us on the podcast, but what we've seen in in Fields of Calantha and other groups. Um, there's a certain way that we discuss what we're seeing in these films, um, and what I see different about uh, Constantine's language is he's using a language of certainty. Um, he is certain about things. Um, and for me, that is foreign. Um, of course, we are we we can speak however we want to, but I feel like with the beauty of Blade Runner is that there is nothing is certain. The only things that we know that are certain is in films. Rachel's a replicant. You know, Roy, Zora, Leon, um, Pris, they're replicants. We know that for sure. We know that it's Blade Runner. We know that it's Los Angeles in the future. We know that there's a Tyrell Corporation. Um, in 2049, we have... We know that Kay is a replicant. We know that Sapper is a replicant. We know that Fraser and Mariette and all of these other things. But most of those, those are hardline things. Everything else is kind of like, we don't know if Wallace is a is a replicant. Hell, we don't even know if Tyrell is a replicant. We don't. There was talk that he he was a, a replicant version of the real Tyrell. Um, we, you know, that's it's. There's so much speculation. So I think to engage these films with the certainty kind of robs them of of discussion. If we're certain about all of these things, uh, just like the what you were talking about, Dan, in terms of the scene, the love scene between Rachel and Deckard, and there's some uncomfortableness and there's questions, well, what's going on here? We don't know what's going on here. For some people, for a lot of women, they feel like um, it's got some uh, rape-like vibes to it. Um, there's... A lot of men don't think that. A and, lot of, first, well, uh, and, and some men do think that, too. Well, I'm just saying, though, in yeah. general, the general response has been a lot of men, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, what? And I don't want to get into that conversation. But what I'm saying is is that there's so much that is undefined, um, which kind of reflects our own lives. There's so much that is undefined. In fact, us living, we're, we're, we're working towards defining who we are, where do we belong, where should we live, who should we marry, where should we go, um, all of those things. And I feel like the Blade Runner universe 
is a reflection of all of those things in the most beautiful way. So to enter into that world with certainty, which you anyone can view the films however they like to and enjoy them however they want to. That's the beauty of art. But I do feel like if you're going to enter, if you're going to engage a discussion of the film with this, Decker's a replicant. This is that. This is that. Of course, I mean, we've had a discussion um, about replicants, like whether they're human or they're not human. Um, okay, so they're manufactured. And then I was thinking the other day, um, there's been thousands of in vitro fertilization pregnancies. These children were unnaturally conceived in a test tube and then unnaturally planted in their, in their mother's womb. And then, of course, they naturally grew, but their inception was unnatural. So does, are they still human? Is that process by which that they were conceived, is that, does that rob them of their humanity? I mean, it sounds kind of dumb. But again, these are just questions that we're answering. So if you want to enter, if you want to talk about Blade Runner with with certainty, I think you're going to rob yourself of a of a, of a fuller discussion. So I would hope that Constantine um, would, hopefully you're listening, we would love to continue to talk about this with you. Um, we think it's completely worthy. And I would love to understand um, what's kind of going through your head, because because... A lot of people that I talk talk with, they're not as certain. So I, I find certainty very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, it comes up now and again that you either find someone who has such a defined, strong, certain opinion about something in, in the movies. And another thing is uh, something that someone will assume or take for granted that maybe is different from something you would have taken from the movie. And you get into a conversation and all of a sudden you realize that that person is coming from their viewpoint on the movie is totally different from yours because they're thinking about it in a different way. As an example, uh, in reading the philosophy book, there's a part where Shanahan talks about uh, Rachel's loss of identity and stuff. And he goes on to say, yeah, imagine one day she thinks she's Tyrell's niece. And then the next day she doesn't even know if she's human. And so she's going through all these feelings. And I remember pausing and I had to go back and reread it. And I said, wait, did I miss something? Where did it show that Rachel thinks that she's Tyrell's niece? And I started thinking about it because he mentions it in a couple of different points. And I I remember talking with you guys about it to be like, okay, am I the only one who has this opinion? That's (laughs) the first time I'd ever heard anyone suggest that Rachel was brought up to actually believe that she was Tyrell's niece, meaning, you know, his niece that he placed at his company to work, et cetera, et cetera. And she had all her memories. And you know, although I don't believe that's what happened, I believe that she just had memories from Tyrell's niece and was made to believe that they were hers so that she thought she had a mother, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But again, the, the reason I bring it up is because it was interesting to think of it from a different perspective and something I'd never thought about before that I was like, huh, I would have never even considered someone taking it that way, but I guess that's totally possible. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, definitely. I. Um... Let's see. I just wanted to also get into his um, to Constantine's objection about 2049 being, um, I think, even more than the narrative part. He feels it's far more aesthetically inferior. Um, and I'll just leave. Uh, let's see. The first part he's uh, is him defending the originals. Um, aesthetics but he says the original uses tenebristic lighting with maximum dynamic range uh dense atmosphere and dynamic light movement are present in almost every shot the composition is highly 
diegetic and squeezes out empty space. Uh, the point of view follows classic conventions of low to high and high to low shots. The set design costumes and props are remarkably rich, functional and allegoric actors are presented at highly stylized shots with often intriguing mysterious effect. Um, original color timing was with golden hues, black, whereas newer releases shifted many scenes to blue turquoise dominated palette. Um, combined these visual elements create a dense, wonderfully constructed, multi-layered, detailed and immersive world. Um, and part B says, in contrast, 2049's palette is all over the place. It was mostly analogous color harmonies. Um, with minimalistic color infusions. All this stuff is like way over my head. So hopefully you guys are following along. <laughs> but um, um, he says a few shots of remarkably garish coloration. Lighting is mostly multi-source diffuse and does not follow noir or tenebristic canons. Uh, dynamic range is generally medium or low. A major departure from the original is the dominance of empty spaces. Set decoration is very minimalistic, and the major set, um, the L.A. Hotel, that is not minimalist is surprisingly banal. Uh, costumes and props are also minimalist or contrived. Several scenes are simply ugly. Point of view is often eye-level and long-distance. Characters are portrayed in ways that lack emotive power or intrigue. The overall visual rep impression is that of an unfinished visual aesthetic that lacks the detail, depth, nuance, and interest of the original film. Um, and he follows that up by comparing shots between 2049 and the original to um, further uh, prove or try to prove his point. So, um, yeah, I sounds, I mean, to me, he clearly did not like. I thought, man, I mean, I'm reading all that and thinking, man, I thought 2049 was beautiful to look at, but... <laughs> it's incredible um, to look at. Yeah, yeah. there's I mean, scenes I, I I've have, never I seen before. Many, yeah. I, have, I have many things to, to pick apart on that. Well, I, I can say one thing, for, for first off, is that the, the original film takes place almost entirely at night, and this one doesn't, so I think that has a lot to do with tenebristic lighting conventions mm -hmm. and with light shifting. I also think that if they had done a deliberately anachronistic pastiche of a noir style, that I think it would read as being false and uh, facile, and I think it would come across like it was just like a rehash of the original movie. I think that this was a mm -hmm. new design statement with a new aesthetic, and that light was a very integral part of it. Um, I think that there is a tremendous amount of diegetic sound composition. And I think if you bring, I think that's why it was nominated for an Oscar for sound mixing and sound editing. I think there's a ton going on in the soundscape. Yeah. Um, I think that it might not be quite as garish and bustling because the point of this movie is not this urban noir. The point of it is a search for for life and, and a search through the desert and and, a, and it's a it's an epic. Whereas the original film is very tightly constrained, which is part of its power and also I think part of its rather limited scope comparably to 2049 versus 2049 allows that scope to breathe a little bit. And I think that if, if, if the aesthetic of the original film is taken uh, as the, as the reason why it's a good movie, then I think, or, or, or rather if, if you think that, you know, copying the aesthetic of the original is necessary to making a, a good follow-up to it, I would really have to heartily disagree with that. Um, I think that there are a lot of, I think that the composition, the frame composition, I think is incredible in 2049. Um, I think that there are, I mean, 
Uh, a shot that I refer to a lot as a great example of that, I think, is when Kay is wa- the famous shot that everybody puts everywhere where Kay is walking into the Las Vegas desert and it's just his silhouette. You want to talk about maximum dynamic range? There's literally a black silhouette on, a, on an incredibly luminous amber background. Um, mm-hmm. And he's walking in the center of the frame. And then the next shot is a bee occupying the same physical space of the frame that he was just occupying. So it's almost like a transmutation. And I, I think that the whole movie is set up very deliberately like that. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that they talked Deacons has talked quite a lot about how they tried very deliberately to shoot in conditions that were similar to like Beijing smog so that there was a, a lot of smog cover, but it was a bright sun on the other side of it so that there was a sense of light being filtered and mm-hmm. not break through because it was a sense of, of of darkness, and it allowed the scenes, for example, of the flyover or flyover of the city, to to breathe in a different way that was toxic and scary, and not as claustrophobic as the original. Because in the original film, they couldn't do a a, a convincing spinner flyover without without a, a relatively primitive green screen, and it wouldn't have looked very good. And to their credit. They, they limited that kind of shot as much as they could. And in this one, they didn't have to do that anymore. And I think that they took the liberty of their of their aesthetic, you know, the, the, what's happened aesthetically in the, in the intervening 35 years and technologically, and they created a new palette that was totally different and yet I think markedly similar to it that didn't read as a pastiche and instead read as a new utterance that was artistically valid and vital. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And uh- – Villeneuve has gone on record saying that he wanted to create a more brutal world. He actually took notes from the the, uh, the Soviet um, aesthetic, where you see the ballerina. There's kind of this. There's this harsh. It's it's winter. It's 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 snowing. And these spaces that we're seeing, it's like it's lack of presence of life. Whereas with the original film, there's life everywhere. It's dystopian. It's kind of falling apart and dirty. But people are all over. Now, years later, more people are gone. There's bigger spaces. There's less life. Um, yeah. But uh, to pull back a little bit from this, I think that, you know, you can always you can always find an argument for or against something. And uh, there's a line from a film that I love called Gattaca where um, Uma Thurman's character says to um, – no, where Ethan Hawke's character says to Uma Thurman's character – Uma Thurman's character, he goes, they have you looking so hard for flaws after a while, that's all you see. Um, and I think that the true, that, that can be true for anything. And I, I just, just because we love something doesn't mean it's good. And the vice versa, just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's bad. It just means you don't like it. Um, I think that you can kind of take in empirical data, say, hey, all of these fans love this thing that's generally loved. Um, maybe does that speak to it being a good thing? Maybe, probably, but again, that's up for debate. Um, I think that, uh, Constantine's, it was well thought out and it was a really, really good argument. Um, I think it's, it's worth continuing the conversation. Obviously it is obvious that all of us don't agree, um, Mm -hmm. point for point. Um, and you know, I'm looking at the photos right now and there's photos of Kay and Joy on the roof, which I think is beautiful. And it's probably one of the most Blade Runner images of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I really believe, and I've seen this before, uh, where some people who have had a hard time with 2049 really want to see the world of 2019 again, and they're not seeing it. They're seeing something different. And I think that's part of the problem with with uh, making sequels. Um, they're, 
audiences are hard to make sequels for. Um, they want the same, but they want something different, but they want something new, but they don't want something new. And I mean, we've seen that argument happen with Star Wars and all sorts of things um, and, and all sorts of films or TV shows or whatever, or reboots. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fine line. It's hard to, uh, it's, it's, I think it's incredibly hard to make something new. And Villeneuve decided, I'm doing something different. And he did. Mm-hmm. And I would rather have someone come in and say, I'm not going to show you what you've seen before. It's not going to look like the same thing. It's going to be different. I'd rather do that than have someone just kind of recreate everything that I've seen and be kind of like, okay, that's really cool. Um, and, right. have it, and have it, that that be it. I, I want something more than that. And I believe, as I think all of us do, that 2049 is more than that in spades. And it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in his in his uh, 2049 paragraph, he mentions the word minimalist over and over again as a pejorative. And I just want to point out that I think minimalism actually fits thematically with this movie quite a bit. And I think that, uh, as Jamie said beautifully, that that it's a stripping away that there's you know the that there's the decimation of life and technology and humanity, and that it's far in the future from an already apocalyptic landscape. And that everything is falling apart, you know, like the, one of the most memorable scenes in the whole film was a dead tree held up by, you know, guy masts. Um, I think that I, I just think that minimalism suits the the nature of the story. That being said, though, I, I don't think that it's necessarily aesthetically minimalist at all. I think it's easy to, to look at sort of um, unvarnished brutalism and geometries and say that it looks minimalist. But I think it's actually really um, kind of baroque in a lot of ways. And I think that it's just a matter of what you're looking at. And if you're looking for a tremendous amount of visual data to be compacted into the frame as it is in 2019 beautifully, then I think you'll be disappointed. But, but if you take it on its own aesthetic grounds, I think you'll see that it's like a, a new utterance that I, I think is so fascinating. I think it's the best looking movie I've seen in, I don't know, 15 years. But to that point though, too, if you look at where Deckard was in Vegas, if you look at the, the, uh, orphanage that Kay goes to, every scene is packed with imagery. I mean, the desk that he approaches, we've we've discussed this, the water symbols on the desk, all of that stuff. In fact, I just noticed another horse on that desk on the far left side that's rearing up with a bunch of other things. I'm like, oh my God, I've never noticed those things before. And there's shit tons of things in that hotel, whether it's the crash yeah. chandelier and all sorts of things yeah. going on that I have not even begun to explore. And oh yeah, it's just different. Mm-hmm. It's placed differently. Um, it's not as it isn't. It's it's it's, a, it's not a small scope. So we're we have to we have to look harder. And I and, I, and I, I'm I think up for to that call challenge. it banal. Yeah, me too. I I think to call it banal is to is to miss the point of it honestly because I think that's kind of the the point is that it's this just ridiculously garish, old um you know casino that has been transmogrified by time and by radiation and by loneliness into this, um, you know, mausoleum almost where Deckard is burying himself, you know, like I, I, I think that, I think that set is, is truly amazing. And I think what he, what he's done to it, like you can see the passage of time and the way that he's interacted with the environment and with the stuff that he's growing and his hydroponics with an Astromo sound effect. Like, I, I feel like there's, there's so <laughs> much going on in there that if you, if you take the time to, to look at it for what it is, you'll notice that being said, Constantine, I, I it sounds like I'm like trying to pick your argument apart in a million ways, but I really admire your way of thinking about this. I the really do because this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> live. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really admire your uh, how how well thought out this was. I really admire the source imagery that you sent to us. I think you did a great job constructing an argument that I, I personally think is tremendously off the mark. 
but I really admire your way of going about bringing it up. And I would love to continue this conversation further. But I also am somebody who has lived through a year in my life where I have seen the, the, the reboots or the, or the, you know, additions to franchises that are closest, closer to my heart than any other. And I've been through this, um, with a number of movies in 20, especially in 2017, where, uh, I, I was forced with this idea of do I allow change to these things that I hold very sacred or do I push it out? And and I, 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 for whatever reason, made the decision that I was going to allow it into my heart and see if I appreciated it. And I think it served me pretty well because 2017 was a, a difficult year for a lot of people who I don't think had that mentality because there were a lot of challenges to convention and a mm-hmm. lot of uh, you know, whether that be Covenant or or It or 2049 or any of these other sort of beloved properties that got rebooted or, you know, re, re, or, you know exploded out in new directions. Um, so, like, I, I think that if, if you're approaching it from a place of expecting something very specific and not getting it, then I think you will I think you will always be disappointed in it. But that being said, again, um, you know, I apologize if I've been overly aggressive with my uh, deconstruction of, of the argument. You know, you make a lot of good points that I just disagree with. Yeah, that's that's about it. I mean, there's some more points he makes in the email, but uh, it would just it would take too too long to get to all of them. Um, but uh, but I mean, I really appreciate him reaching out, and he's obviously th- thought this through a lot. And uh, you know, he's uh, yeah, I, I always. Any, you know, even if I don't agree with everything, you know, I, I just really uh, applaud his efforts um, to, you know, make his point. And, uh, you know, he's seems like very, uh, very intelligent and um, thoughtful person. So, yeah, thanks, Constantine. What yeah, I would like to do. Still following us. Yeah, what I would like to do is to, because this has been a great discussion for all of us, I think all th- four of us come from we experience these Blade Runner films very differently. I, I completely mm-hmm. believe that. Like from me to Patrick to Ryan to Dan, we all experience these films differently. Um, and I would Im, uh, invite Constantine to reach out to us again. And I'd, because this email was from a while ago, probably four months, maybe I can't exactly remember. Um, I would three months, three months. Okay. I would be interested to see where you're at. Where you're at with 2049, do you still think that way? So if you're listening, please get in touch with us again after you've heard this and uh, either leave us a voicemail or send us another email. I would, I would, I, because I, I know for myself, it's always a journey for me. I mean, even like with films that I haven't connected to, like I'm a big Alien fan and everyone knows it. Like I didn't connect to Covenant. It made me really angry. Um, part of it did and but it's a journey i'm always kind of thinking well how could i find my way back into this is you know i'm always processing it as much as i don't like it i think about it um and i'm curious if that's happening with you constantine so if you're listening please contact us um we'll have all that information at the end of this episode and uh, we'd love to hear back from you yeah and that goes for every anyone listening um yeah please reach out um we'd love to analyze your your thoughts and points of view. Um, and you're the reason we even, we have this, you know, you're, you know, you're what keeps us going. So we just, uh, thank you, uh, again for, for listening, for being fans. Um, just like we're fans and, you know, we, uh, we love interaction and we love the, uh, building those kind of bridges and relationships. So, um, yeah, thank you. I would call that a wrap. Uh, again, we have, uh, 
so much more to get through and to talk about, and we will. Um, We plan on doing uh, these listener feedback episodes at intervals. Um, The more we get, again, because we can't play every uh, voicemail and we can't read every email, so we want to address this. And Dan and Ryan are kind of the point people for that, and they're going to be answering all the emails that we get. And we get quite a bit. Uh, for Shoulder of Orion, to be quite honest. And it's pretty amazing. And for me, it's an honor to, you know, I, I have people who add me just today. Two people added me on Facebook and they're like, oh, yeah, you you work on Shoulder of Orion. It's really great. And it's just it's it's an honor like because I I'm just talking about what I love. That's all I'm doing. And that's all we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great to have people show us respect and show us and give us an hour of their time or two hours of their time to listen to what we have to say, because you can listen to a thousand other podcasts or you can watch a bunch of shows or you can watch, watch the movie and not turn us on and you guys choose to. And so I, I, that is a a great honor bestowed upon me. So thank you. Yeah, it is a, it is a huge honor. And uh, just jumping off that briefly before we go, there are plans in the works between us, all meaning all of you listening to this and, and all of us, to do a commentary track for 2049 and hopefully eventually 2019 that we will probably offer as a Patreon benefit. So if you do think about watching the movie and also listening to us in the future, we might have a kind of an interesting way for you to be able to do that. So stay tuned. We're really working on our Patreon benefits right now and kind of revamping the whole program. And that's something that has us all really excited. So I would call that a wrap then. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again, everybody. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being on, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you guys soon. Hey there, guys. Um, I just wanted to get in touch. Um, My name's Nick. I'm from uh, near Exeter in the southwest of England. And um, first of all, I wanted to say um, what a great job you're doing. Thank you very much for all of the effort and the hard work that you put into creating a really absorbing podcast. So I... I had a few thoughts of my own, um, just some observations, some small observations that I had uh, on the movie, just on some of the details really. Um, I certainly can't go into any of the great, deep, philosophical debates that you guys have. Um, uh, I don't think I'm nearly intelligent enough, Um, so uh, thank you for for your insight, uh, even if I can't offer any of my own. the first thing I noticed, which was quite interesting actually, was um, Wallace has a very robotic movement about him, which is really interesting. So, um, I don't know, is that deliberate? I, I guess in, in some senses it is. He's, he's, he's obviously a very um, uh, enhanced or, or augmented uh, person in terms of his... Uh, you know, he's he's got these sort of little things that click on to behind his ear uh, to help him with his vision. Um, so yeah, it was just very curious to me that that he had such a sort of a robotic movement about him. You know, almost as though he, he was a sort of a a mime artist or something. I thought that was quite interesting, given his role and his character. Um, I recall you guys spoke. At, some length about the um, Wallace's kind of inner sanctum, uh, his his office, if you if you will, um, and regarding the the wall, the, or the walls, and, and and what they were made of, whether they were made of wood because of the the scarcity of wood, um, 
when I first watched the movie, it, it to me it looked a bit like when you see um, precast concrete used in in building construction, um, and it's cast into wooden molds, and it leaves a, it actually leaves an imprint of the the wood grain in the concrete, um, and it looked a bit like that to me. It had that that kind of uh, that sort of stark industrial look to it, but. Uh, on second viewing, it, it appeared to me to be a sort of a gold-coloured marble or, or stone, uh, but certainly not wood. Although I do uh, echo the, the sentiments of one of you guys in saying that the, the floor appeared to be wood, um, just by the sound it was making when, when people walked upon that. Um, leading on from that, one thing I saw which I noticed, which I thought was actually really funny and, and it was maybe a bit of a mistake or perhaps a bit of an error, if you like. Um, when uh, Kay goes to visit Gaff in his kind of, uh, I guess we'll call it retirement home, um, he happens to be surrounded by an awful lot of wood. Uh, there's, a, there's a really nice kind of parquet wood floor um, and a sort of a, a wooden... Um, uh, lots of sort of wooden uh, moulding details uh, on the on the wall behind him and, and window frames and such like. So um, I thought that was that was quite an amusing oversight, really. I, I think in a way it, it was a kind of the visual was there to kind of deliberately uh, put us into a into a sort of a, a visual surroundings which we would identify with uh, i.e. that of a retirement home or, or some sort of convalescence home or something of that nature um, but yeah given the given the significance of, of real wood um, I thought that was that was quite an amusing oversight um, so I wanted to say about uh, also um, when love crushes Joshi's hand um, I wondered whether or not perhaps that was a kind of a, a reference to um, to Bassy breaking Deckard's fingers. Um, I don't know. It was just something that occurred to me when I watched it the first time. But what an amazing character she is. I mean, she is just absolutely terrifying. And I, I really, really enjoyed her. I mean, she just frightened the crap out of me. Um, she was just amazing. Um, I, I really loved Kay. I mean, I think uh, I've, I've seen a couple of um, Ryan Gosling's movies. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm kind of a fan. I wouldn't say I'm not a fan. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I thought he was great in this. He had, he had the, um, he had a sort of a subservience about him, um, but. In a strange sort of way, it, it kind of made me feel very reflective about my own humanity, my own identity. Um, you know, I'm at a point in my life, I'm, I'm in my early 40s or mid 40s now, um, where I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably ripe for having a midlife crisis and, and thinking about my own place in the world. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, it's I kind of looked at, at Kay and I thought that perhaps his his uh, because he his his own 
humanity, if you like, is something that's so uh, so much at his in the forefront of, of his thoughts that in many ways that makes him more human. Um, and I found that really interesting, and, and it kind of made me think that um, perhaps in some ways um, a replicant could be more human <laughs> um, because they uh, are perhaps more aware uh, of their own psyche and their own place in the world. Um, I don't know. That was it. Was just a, an interesting thing, and I I, I really like the way that role was was portrayed. Um, you know, and he had a real he had a strength, um, but he had a, a real sort of vulnerability about him as well. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, so yeah, that was it really, guys. Um, thank you again. Um, really enjoying your work, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what you guys have got to say next. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Hey, Peter from the Midwest, checking in again. Um listened to Jamie's mini episode where he talked to Matt who had uh, gone to an interview with Sean Young and uh, I hadn't listened to this yet so I'm going through that and something popped in my head that I didn't really recall from the original Blade Runner and I don't know if 2049 sort of erased this or rewrote this memory of 2019 in my head but I didn't recall um, Deckard being a passenger in the spinners so frequently uh, a lot of that movie is, is or his time in the spinners is, is, or at least a significant part going to uh, the Tyrell Corp you know he's in the passenger seat and sort of being brought along and almost it's, it's just another odd thing that somehow kind of touched me a little more this time and this viewing in that you know, he's, he's very, and you've talked about Deckard in this way, that he doesn't want to do what he's been doing. Um, and he's almost just kind of along for the ride. And it's just interesting. I, I, and how in 2049, you know, Kay is out there on his own doing this. And it, it's just, it, for some reason, that just hit me a lot. A lot of the, the scenes of, of him in the passenger seat in that, in that spinner and then, how I always pictured him actually out there driving these things again. And it's odd how that how twenty forty nine sort of changed that and and you know I don't know. That just hit me for some reason. But I'd leave it in this magic box again. <laughs> See you guys. Hi, my name is Jamie Mack from Vancouver, Canada. I wanted to talk about uh, episode 12 of the podcast where Micah describes how Joy's humanity can be defined by her willingness to sacrifice herself for something greater. Uh, but I thought about how the Nexus 9 Wallace models are designed to always put humans first, to never run away, as demonstrated in the 2038 short um, where his replicant uh, kills himself at his command. Uh, so I'd inherited, uh, upon first viewing, Joy's sacrifice as being entirely programmed to serve her lover client, Joe. Um, and I also thought about A Clockwork Orange, um, because that book and film raises the notion of where if you take away somebody's free will to do, uh, to make the right choice, are they actually a moral agent? If they can't choose whether what they're doing is right or wrong, um, do they have morality? Are they acting in a morally good way? And so 
looking at that is is Joy choosing to help Joe or not? And I think if you interpret that she's entirely programmed, then she's not. Um, but a friend of mine raised a great point uh, because before I was arguing that because I didn't see her going against her programming in, in any part of the film and so I didn't think that she evolved to find her humanity in the way that the replicant movement does. Um, but my friend pointed out that when products are created by a company, first and foremost there are um, safety measures put in place to ensure that they always follow the orders of that company. Um, but she's shown to go against um, the corporation's desires in terms of she doesn't betray Officer K by revealing his location to uh, the Wallace Corporation. So for me, that would be the only sign that she does go against her programming and perhaps does evolve into something more. But I uh, wanted to know what you guys think of it. Thanks. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.